0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about denialism with the British sociologist and writer Keith Con harris author of the book Denial, the Unspeakable Truth. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to talk for a few minutes about some current events. Uh, we're recording this current event section on Tuesday, July 20th, and we're going to be talking about the COVID vaccination Progress or lack thereof in the U.S. and some of the politics behind it, some of the disinformation behind it. I guess, Andrew, it's not that surprising after four years of Trumpism that something like this got politicized and we see such a striking divide in vaccination rates in different parts of the country and that there's a a real correlation between that and how people vote. I'll tell you, I,
1: I would have been surprised, you know, maybe a year ago, maybe even six months ago, because it's one thing. You know, to not care about other people and not to care about uh, families being separated at the border and, and so forth. It's another thing when it's your own health. But that's, that's what it is. The, the, I've been looking through the numbers pretty carefully, and it's, it's very striking. The Republicans, just not all of them, but in very, very large numbers, are just not wanting to get vaccinated and not being vaccinated.
0: Well, it seems like there was an, an opening for some people to to use the pandemic to their political advantage and their economic advantage, and they jumped into the breach and sucked the whole Republican Party into their this downward spiral of, of denialism.
1: People have been looking at this uh, in two ways. First, in terms of where people live, especially Republican states and, and Democratic states, and then at the level of the individuals the individuals are ultimately the ones who matter because that's who gets the shots in the arms, individuals. A Washington Post-ABC poll came out on July 4. Uh, 86% of Democrats have received at least one shot, compared with 45% of Republicans, uh, according to that poll. And when you look at the people who haven't gotten you know, at least one dose and aren't going to get it, and that's what's really slowing down the progress of, you know, getting 70% of the adult population inoculated are these holdouts. The, the rate of holdouts uh, is, is pretty amazingly different. Okay, so 86% of Democrats have gotten at least one dose. Uh, another 6% say they're not likely to get vaccinated. You got only 45% of Republicans who've been vaccinated. Another 47% say they're not likely to get vaccinated. Okay. And 38% of the Republicans, that's three out of every eight, saying they will definitely not get vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Three out of every eight people. I mean, I, I was just crunching some numbers in terms of the 2020 election, you know, who won and where the vaccination rates are high and low. And it's really a striking correlation where. Trump did best, very low uh, vaccination rates, where Biden did best, much higher vaccination rates. If you take the the 10 states, Wyoming, West Virginia, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and so forth, the 10 states where Trump did best, and you look at the population of people 18 to 64, these are the latest data from like today, uh, gotten from the Mayo Clinic, less than half of that age group in those 10 states has gotten vaccinated, 49 percent. If you look at the 10 states where um, Biden did best, Vermont, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, California, New York, and so forth, okay, it's 74 percent have in the 18 to 64 age group have already been vaccinated. That's 74 percent versus 49 percent. You can explain Basically, 77% uh, of the the difference in statewide inoculation rates um, or vaccination rates, you can explain 77% of it in terms of how Trumpy versus you know how Democratic the the vote went.
0: Which is crazy, but also not necessarily surprising given the country we live in right now. I can't imagine being a doctor in you know intensive care unit. In one of these red counties, where, yeah. where where vaccines are widely available, finally after a whole year of having to deal with all the insanity of like dealing with COVID spikes for the past year, there are finally vaccines available. And in some of these counties, these rural counties, the wards are filling up again and they're like running out of oxygen and stuff again. And there are all these good countries that don't have vaccine access. They're having massive casualties and, and social crisis. And we have this glut of vaccines now, and we have hospitals filling up with these idiots who won't take the vaccine. I just can't. I mean, I feel like if I was a doctor, I would just, quit my job and leave the hospital and move somewhere where people take vaccines i just can't imagine having the the patience to keep working like that surrounded by these like suicidal maniacs yeah you know, last week the issue of anti-vax propaganda was in the news, and Jen Psaki referred really briefly to a report by the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and I read the report. Send it to you. Uh, it's a su- it's a summary of the business of anti-vaccine, that with a small amount of people who produce most of the anti-vaccine content shared on social media, the huge amount of money they make is purveyors of vaccine disinformation you know i obviously like we all know there's anti-vaccine information out there but i was surprised to see how like organized it is and how well funded it is or how lucrative it is and how there are these the the article talks about just like 12 people who are responsible for 70 percent of the anti-vaccine content that's shared on facebook
1: within that group of 12 people it's really if you look at it a few people who are the, the big players, I mean, especially... Yeah, the,
0: half of that 70% is just three people. Joseph Merkula, Del Bigtree, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr.
1: Yeah, and and Joseph Merkula is pulling in revenues of like $16 million a year on this stuff.
0: One person. According, and according to the, the report, the anti-vax industry has annual revenues of at least $36 million, which is incredible. So obviously there's a reason why people are producing this content Uh, there's a there's a real financial incentive for them to continue to produce this content and it's the viral nature of of the content that makes it profitable the report goes into sort of how these different people work together to spread their content and make money off each other's content i didn't realize it was such a money-making thing it's not just like smaller donor donations they're selling products to people they're selling books they're selling videos to people. They're selling like $500 videos to people, anti-vax videos, all sorts of alternative healthcare products. And the report also goes into the fact that we can only estimate how much money the anti-vax industry makes for social media platforms based on, you know, various metrics and the amount of views they get and clicks. But the report estimates that the anti-vax industry's total social media following of $62 could be worth up to 1.1 billion dollars to social media platforms so even though we hear facebook talk about how they're trying to censor out vaccine disinformation and covid disinformation they're making a lot of money off of these people and they have a real incentive to keep making money off these people
1: yeah this is this is all for sure and it was kind of disheartening to see biden uh get beat up for taking a stand against them And then having to walk it back to some extent, you know, saying, well, you know, Facebook uh, isn't killing people. It's the anti-vax information that's killing people. Well, yeah, but it's doing it through Facebook. But on the other hand, reading this report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate and, and all the rest, we're getting the supply side of the phenomenon. What is not being dealt with, which I think is the bigger problem, is the demand side. I mean, people are able to sell $500 videos because people are paying for $500 videos. And, you know, as we were just talking about, there's a lot of Republican voters and other people eat up anti-vax stuff, and and, and they're buying into this stuff willingly, and they're buying into this, like you say, even even when they're lying there in a hospital with a ventilator in their throats and so forth. You know, I, I just wonder, like, Okay, let's say that you're able to de-platform these people on the major social media platforms. How how much is it really going to do? Especially because you've still got Newsmax, you've still got Fox, you've still got politicians, Rand Paul and and Trump and the others. And they're running the same line and they still get airtime. So I, I think one has to, to really wonder what the hell is going on in a country like the, the United States. Why is this so prevalent and what we can do about that? And, it, 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 you know, the, la, it, the answer to the last question is by no means obvious.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, our conversation with Keith Con Harris about denialism. So we're recording this interview on July 6th, uh, 2021, and we're very uh, pleased to have with us on the podcast today, Keith Con harris He's a sociologist and writer from the UK. He's the author of seven books, which range uh, from a wide variety of topics, and maybe we'll get into that uh, a little bit um, today. We're going to be talking with him about his book, Denial, The Unspeakable Truth. Keith Con Harris is a freelance writer for publications including The Guardian, New Humanist, uh, Prospect, uh, The New Statesman, and other publications. He's a senior lecturer and course team leader at Leo Beck College. He's an associate lecturer in the Department of Psychosocial Studies and Honorary Research Fellow in the Birkbeck Institute for the Study of Antisemitism in Birkbeck College. Keith, I was surprised at the wide spectrum of topics that are covered in your books, everything from heavy metal to uh, anti-Semitism to denialism. This is not your typical academic trajectory of uh, interest. What's that all about?
2: I've kind of transitioned from a purely academic career to one that straddles academia and something else. That's partly due to dissatisfaction with the straight jackets of academia. It's also due to personal circumstances. But what I would say is that whilst it may look as though my work is going in several different directions at once, there are common themes that do tie things together, although you'd have to read quite a lot of my stuff to, to work out what those actually are. Of course, people who read one aspect of my work Often don't read the other aspects, so it looks like they're siloed, even though they're not. Well,
0: what about this topic of denialism? What got you interested in the topic enough to write a whole book on it?
2: Well, it's a case in point, really, of the sort of commonality behind the the apparent diversity of my interests. I got interested in this from at the starting point. Well, there were several starting points. One of them was just simply a a lurid fascination with uh, conspiracy theories and and extreme political cultures that didn't have much behind it initially other than the sort of kind of wow factor that that appealed to, to sort of 17, 18 year old and also the desire to laugh at people. It was pretty snotty and and not particularly well thought through, but that's the case with most teenagers. But it did evolve, and the particular point where my interest in, in denial and denialism started was during my work on extreme heavy metal music scenes. One of the things that I sought to try and understand was this curious phenomenon of people within the scene saying apparently ridiculous things, or contradictory things, or when apparently smart people said things that seemed stupid. And I started to work from a sociological basis to try and understand what that meant. And that got me interested in what I called in my sociological work, reflexive anti-reflexivity, which if you like, is an artful way of being artless. Or an intelligent way of being unintelligent, or a finely tuned way of, of being undisciplined and unthoughtful. And that is a kind of practice that I have been almost obsessed with for a long time. And it started off from this apparently trivial and marginal phenomenon, but then. I began to see how this sort of conceptual apparatus could help me understand some much broader uh, political developments.
0: You talk about people who are couching something that is not an intelligent argument to make it sound artful, or the opposite: people who are who are
2: who are actually clever, but they're trying to make it look stupid. It can be both, but I think I think the key thing that that I'm talking about is what happens when people use smart and sophisticated techniques to try and avoid engaging with the world as it is oh okay and try and use ways of of using almost a scholarly apparatus in order to deflect and overturn scholarly thinking
0: i, th- I think both andrew and i found a lot of things about your Book denial to be really insightful and it got me thinking a lot, of, a lot of in more nuanced ways about the phenomena of den- denialism. What what are the main things that people commonly get wrong, in your opinion, and when the, about denialism?
2: Well, when we talk about denialism here, we're talking about organized forms of denial, such as climate change denial, uh, Holocaust denial, AIDS denialism, all the, all those sorts of, of phenomena. The thing that people get wrong about them is that they are often seen as an assault on science, an assault on truth, an assault on scholarship. When in fact, the opposite is the case, because if you actually look at the the discourse, the rhetoric of people who put forward these ideas, they're obsessed with truth, they're obsessed with science. They love science so much that they want to be part of it, even though they never can be. They love science so much that they want to create their own simulacra of science, and it is not stupidity. It is the opposite of that. It is a difficult and taxing and complex task to develop these forms of denialist scholarship. And I think that's one thing that people get wrong. Can you
0: give an example? Like the efforts that go into like climate change denial and creating alternative science around climate change.
2: So if you look at multiple denialisms, climate change being one example, if you ever read any of it, one thing you will see is that it is festooned with figures, with numbers, with formulas, with tables, with graphs, and so on. It is designed to look scholarly. It is also audacious, and I think that is not sufficiently appreciated. I mean, Holocaust denial in particular. The magnitude of trying to create a kind of pseudo-academic field that would overturn something where there is just simply so much evidence, the audacity of that is breathtaking. And it requires a certain amount of... Uh, sophistication to be able to engage in it uh, in the first place.
1: So Keith, one of the main things I got from your book is this uh, idea that you put forward that denialism hasn't always existed. It's not just you know something that is there in every society. It's not a trans-historical phenomenon, but it arises due to specific social circumstances. So uh, I'm wondering what kind of evidence you have that allows you to draw that conclusion and More broadly, what are these circumstances that do give rise to denialism?
2: First of all, let let, let me be clear. Trying to put forward an alternative truth or an alternative narrative is not a recent development. It is something that human beings have been doing for a very long time. What is new is the scholarly apparatus and the systematic nature of it. One of the reasons why that's new, or new at least in historical terms, is that science and scholarship as we understand it today is new. It is a product of the modern world, obviously drawing on deeper roots. But the the scientific method as it developed in the last few centuries, while it may have drawn on older philosophic, philosophic and scholarly frameworks, does it in new and much more systematic ways and produces uh, this kind of torrent of knowledge. Not always correct knowledge, often subsequently refuted or subsequently reinterpreted knowledge, in a way that wasn't uh, the case before, when publishing and scholarship was something confined to a small elite, and where where books were, were rare things. So this sort of attempt to situate yourself within that scholarly flood is by definition new, because the scholarly flood is new. The other reason why I say it's novel is that, in the modern world, certain things that humans have always or often done and continue to do to this day suddenly become much more difficult to justify. Um, So we can see this in, in the example of genocide. Genocide is something that has happened at periodic points throughout history, albeit the fact that in the modern world it can be done uh, on a much grander scale and much more efficiently. And if you look historically, you can see uh, statues put up by ancient emperors that proclaim the fact of genocide, or at least the fact of, of massacre. And even in the early colonial period, in the western world we see elements of of that for example there was a robust debate in the 16th century in the spanish-speaking world about the, the native population of the new world whether they could be enslaved whether they were really people whether they could be killed at will uh, whether they could be made christians or not now the very fact that there was a debate over those issues suggests that they were pre-modern to a certain extent, because those aren't the sorts of debates that are had now. Or rather, when they do happen, they happen in very coded sorts of ways. Even the Nazis did not say openly, Uh, we are going to try and kill every last Jew. In fact, even within the bureaucracy, there was a a, a fair amount of use of euphemism over, over those sorts of activities. So certain things become much more difficult to speak of publicly, regardless of the fact that people still want to do them. And that is where denialism comes into it, because denialism allows you to legitimate things that you want to do but that are un- unspeakable and allows you to speak of them in a different way using the language of scholarship so for example in the case of genocide a holocaust denial is in fact a coded justification of genocide because it, its corollary of holocaust denial is that if jews managed to hoax the world in pretending that there was a genocide then there would be a very strong case that there should be a genocide of the jews So it's a kind of coded argument for what it denies. And you find that in a lot of denialist work, you find in climate change denialists, you find a coded argument for inaction against anthropogenic climate change, disguised as an argument that anthropogenic climate change is not actually happening.
0: And so you're not just talking about denialists needing to appeal to Stand, you know, modern concepts of scholarship and, and truth seeking, but also to modern moral standards, right? So the the people that are the neo Nazis that wanna kill Jews are having to defend Nazis by saying the Nazis didn't really
2: kill any Jews. Right. Exactly. Uh, or people uh, who who do not want action against climate are defending their actions saying that there is nothing to take action about and ultimately it's using that cool scholarly language to legitimate a particular moral standpoint a particular politics a particular form of action or inaction
0: so we have this, this, this situation where the denialists have to concede some kind of moral ground to their opponents, right? So is this something that in a certain sense we should be uh, proud of? Is it a sign that we've weakened our opponents significantly to the point that they can't openly declare their aims any longer? And even though they haven't stopped arguing, they're definitely on the back foot, no longer openly advocating what they're really for, but forced to defensively challenge scads of facts um, that are by no means easy to challenge?
2: Well, on a good day, <laughs> I agree with you. On a bad day, and I think the book was mostly written on a kind of bad day, if you like, uh, I don't agree with you. Because what it means is that I, if one believes in the value of debate and argument at all, then the problem is that we, there are certain things that we have never had a debate about. And one thing that we have never had a debate about, at least as far as I'm aware, is on the pros and cons of inaction and, or action against climate change. We have debates sometimes over whether it is happening at all. We have debates about what sort of action is required, but it's I can't think of an example of somebody openly saying, this is happening, it's gonna be serious, it's gonna be disastrous for many people, and yet we should do nothing. And part of me feels that that debate, however difficult and painful it is to contemplate, may have a certain value because at least things will be out there and at least the battle lines will be clearer and perhaps even that there might even be a chance of persuasion that that currently isn't there.
1: Right, I I think that we're getting into the real heart of uh, all all of these issues and we're going to continue with this this kind of uh, tension but you refer, Keith, to denialism organized, you know, structured scientific denial or pseudo-scientific denial but you suggest that we're, society is, is morphing into another phase that you call post-denialism. And my question is, isn't, isn't it maybe the case that denialism is preferable to the looming post-denialism? If post-denialism means that it's a situation in which desires that were unspeakable have become speakable again, maybe that's a good deal worse than the denialism. So my question is, to the extent that we can, shouldn't we try to preserve and extend efforts to delegitimate anti-human reactionary ideologies, you know, Nazism, Stalinism, and so forth, even if this means that our opponents will then be forced more and more to resort to denialism when they fight back?
2: Well, in some parts of the world, that train's already left the station. I think the profound change that I think the Trump and the post-Trump era have showed is a weakening of what one might call denialist restraint. You now have a substantial population both in the grassroots and within what is now the opposition or in some states even in government that is so unmoored from From any notion of facts that it barely even bothers to systematically deny anymore and comes very close to arguing for what it actually wants that it mix mixes truth and falsehood in, in an entirely cavalier way and to get that section of the population of the political class back to a situation where they are soberly denying And thereby tacitly conceding a shared moral framework seems too big an ask at this stage, although I think in certain countries the game is still very much afoot. So we have to kind of prepare ourselves for a world where people will openly argue for what couldn't be openly argued before. Certainly in America, they may not call it fascism, but essentially there is now a fairly robust movement towards abandoning any kind of democracy worthy of the name so we cannot any longer assume that that shared set of moral assumptions still holds so the question then becomes what do you actually do well the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that at least in some parts of the world this is actually happening but another thing you can do perhaps more creative thing you can do is to actually start thinking about what are the what are the possibilities here for political action, for scholarly and non-scholarly contestation, for public debate. What can we do now, or what will we be do, do now in the world that is emerging, that we could not do before? And perhaps one thing you can do is oppose more effectively because you know where the moral battle lines are actually drawn. But conversely, one thing you could also do is perhaps find new ways of making political arguments that are based on an acknowledgement of that moral difference. It's a paradox, but I don't think that... Acknowledging moral differences between peoples is antithetical to, to the possibility of persuasion. To some extent, the acknowledgement of difference is the precondition for persuading someone. So those are the sorts of possibilities that, that, that I think we need to start exploring.
1: Right. Let me try to follow up on this, because I think you're absolutely right about uh, what Trump and Trumpism represent. I mean, make America great again involves to a large degree making the unspeakable speakable again. And my problem has to do with the fact that that's not what I want. Okay, that's not what we want. We we, we don't want to be inundated with these racist, misogynist, xenophobic attacks on us all the time. You, you, you make the point that, that for instance, denialist... Uh, Talk and writing isn't just expressing ideas, it, it's it's an attack, and it's meant to be an attack. So these people are attacking us, and I, I just, I look at all these movements, for instance, I mean, in the classic case, the the, the Me Too movement, where what we're, we're trying to do is to delegitimate uh, an ideology, and shouldn't we be doing that? instead of saying, okay, well, now they're out in the open, that's all well and good, better that they're out in the open than that they're hiding, I would rather that they not be normalized, They not be desires not be regarded as legitimate. Don't we need to fight the idea that their ideology and their desires should be normalized?
2: I, I think there's a difference between what you call normalization and... Um, and acknowledging that some things exist in the world and cannot be ignored. One of the things that has become very apparent in the last couple of decades is that the practices that we used to rely on to marginalize certain ideas are much more challenging today. They're not impossible, but they're more challenging. While it's certainly true that that kicking Trump off Twitter and when Facebook and Twitter decide to act, removing people can make some kind of difference. It it ends up in a kind of whack-a-mole thing where there are so many different channels for discourse and so many ways for people to connect with each other that to marginalize and exclude becomes ever more difficult. Certainly, when I was researching this book, I looked at a fair amount of stuff like Holocaust denial literature. Now, I remember when the very first time I saw Holocaust denial literature, which is around the early 1990s, when I was at university. And I'd always been fascinated by it. And when I finally encountered it, it was in the university library. And I had to ask for it specially because this was not easily accessible material. And if you did want to access it, you needed to give somebody who didn't know your address these days, you know, I, for example, in the book, I I, I quote from a small section of the Turner Diaries, which is a a, a sort of quote-unquote classic of far-right literature in the US. I found it within two minutes, you know, it was easily available and downloadable, and I didn't even have to pay for it. So in those circumstances, whilst marginalization could be effective to an extent, it, it certainly cannot have the kind of success that we relied on in the past. You could certainly argue that certain people should not be assaulted by having to see hateful material. You could certainly argue that platforms like Twitter can and should curate what they make available to ensure that people are not assaulted by seeing attacks on their very existence. But whilst we can and should do things towards that, we also have to acknowledge that it's only possible to have a degree of success and not total success. And therefore, at the same time, as we try and marginalise things insofar as they are marginalizable, we also, in a kind of twin-track approach, have to find ways of engaging with those ideas and acknowledging the simple reality that they are out there. And, and repression alone cannot be the way that uh, the only way to deal with them.
0: So we're talking about how to successfully combat denialism. So to that extent, um, in your book, you discuss Holocaust denial a lot, and including the case of Deborah Lipstadt. She's the historian from Emory University, um, who two decades ago, in a celebrated legal case in the U.K., defended herself against the charge of having libeled a Holocaust denier. And I mention it here because she emphasizes the importance of putting the actual facts forward as a strategy to combat denialism. For example, while acknowledging that, quote, historical facts are not enough alone to counter denial, she says that, quote, they are, however, our most important weapon, close quote. And a while back on this podcast, we interviewed a historian of Stalin-era Russia. Um, Her name was Leslie Rimmel and she's strongly concurred with Lipstadt's opinion about this. So, you know, what do you think about this idea that fighting denial with facts is our most important weapon?
2: It's certainly essential to do it. There are two principal reasons why it's necessary to do it. One is the moral outrage of letting lies like that simply stand is unsupportable. They just have to be challenged. There's just no way around that. And second of all, to people who are genuinely looking for the truth on an issue it's important that they don't stumble into that unchallenged and to minimise the number of people who get caught up in things like Holocaust denial, so yes, that's important but it only goes so far it only goes so far the problem is focusing on the fact, doesn't really engage with why people engage in denialism and what they're trying to do with it and what the alternatives might be to it. There's a certain naivety there in people uh, like Deborah Lipstadt. Uh, One of the things I was trying to do with the book uh, was to suggest that the alternative to denial... If people didn't deny the Holocaust, there would be something much more horrible (laughs) that they would do instead. And, And that leads you inescapably to talking about the sort of things that are not amenable to facts which is issues of ideas and morals and values and agendas in the world, which may go very, very deep and it can't really be counted by facts, but might be counted by something else.
0: Hey, we're gonna return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're gonna take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
3: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing, an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, Attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
0: You, you say some interesting things in the, the book about how it's like almost impossible for a denialist to lose because and for several reasons one being that um, just their own existence is like a victory you want to maybe talk a little bit about just how difficult it is to defeat denialists with 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 these sort of fact-based approaches
2: well if you look at the cases of someone like david irving yeah he lost the libel case he brought and it was absolutely right that that deborah Lipstadt and her publisher fought this every step of the way clearly it was but he hasn't got away and he hasn't stopped what he's doing and he still has followers and online he's able to reach those followers as are people who are like him so we have to start thinking about what you do about that recalcitrance Because the entire point of denialism is to create a different kind of fact in response to a mountain of scholarly evidence. So to some extent, given that it's predicated on that audacious act, then debunking is only going to be of limited use. Because this is motivated reasoning, and if the motivation is strong enough, then there is always another argument, there is always another possibility. And one thing I do agree with Deborah Lipstadt is that one should not publicly debate Holocaust deniers on the facts, because it's a pointless activity. It just doesn't work, although you should put in counter-arguments, but not as part of a a back-and-forth because there is an element of legitimation if you actually do that. But one of the things I say in the book is leaving open at least the the theoretical possibility of a different kind of conversation. You know, so I say in the book, you know, I would, like Deborah Lipstadt, I would never debate with uh, with David Irving about whether there were gas chambers, because it would be a pointless activity. But I might, in theory, under very controlled circumstances, perhaps maybe, debate over basic issues of morality, about the ethics of genocide, about the ethics of of how one treat treats particular kinds of people, including Jews. That might be enlightening, albeit disturbing, in a way that that a public debate never could be.
1: Yeah, I mean I mean right, we're gonna get back to that question. Because, uh, well, it's, it, for obvious reasons. Um, so, yeah, so the, there's the issue of the, the limited ability to, to counter denialism with the facts. But what about other strategies? For instance, what about exposing the ideologies and the aims that lie at the core of denialism? Making clear, in other words, what the denialists are really for. And making clear that their denial of the evidence is in service of those ideologies and aims. I think your, your book actually does that quite well. You managed to take snippets from what Holocaust denialists and climate change denialists have argued uh, and to patch them together in a way that successfully exposes their aims and that The patching together links the denialist rhetoric, which is supposedly about facts, it links it to these people's real aims. I thought it was very effective, Keith. So when you did this, was your purpose to combat denialism? That wasn't clear to me. And in any case, do you think it can be an effective way to combat denialism?
2: I think it it, it has possibilities. Essentially, what I was doing was a kind of taunting, basically saying, what are you afraid of? you've basically gone 99% of the way towards saying that the Holocaust was a good thing. Why not take that final step? You've basically gone 99% of the way towards saying that we should take no action on climate change. Why won't you take that final step? And it is showing how close denialists come towards justifying what they deny is, I think, useful because it allows us to drill down into the bedrock of what's going on. And it acts as a kind of invitation to say, take off that mask. What are you afraid of? Say what it is you want. And as a rhetorical strategy, it seems to have perhaps a little bit more mileage than endless debunkings that That never seem to really go anywhere that may be useful in a legal sense or may be useful in terms of denying people a platform, but don't really get to the heart of things. So
1: I take it that this was not meant as, you know, a how-to to the rest of us that, you know, here is how you can expose what these people are really for, although they're disguising it.
2: I think there was an element of that. I mean, I'm not suggesting everybody does what what I did. The book is a long essay, and that's a particular form that works in a particular way, and And I wouldn't see what I've done as a model necessarily for anybody else. But there are possibilities in it that, that in my view, have not been explored quite as... Assiduously, as other possibilities have explored, one of the things that denialists do is to try and force you to focus on lots of detail, details. So, for example, you know, evolution denialists, uh, so called intelligent design advocates, focus on the eye, the complexity of the eye. And if you're not careful, you will, get, you will spiral into a very detailed conversation that is futile. What I'm suggesting, in a way, is is zooming the camera lens outwards and thinking about where does all this lead? What are the implications of these arguments? And a lot of the implications of the arguments that denialists make are extraordinary. I really don't understand why this hasn't been talked about more. Is the issue of what would it mean in terms of Holocaust denial? What it, what would it mean if there were Six million people more living on earth than is officially acknowledged, what would that actually mean you know and i know d de- I know debunkers have, have have tried to push denialists to say, Well, where did they all go? but what it actually means when it comes down to it is that A variety of countries have systematically, since 1945, systematically falsified census data. They have systematically falsified all kinds of statistics from the very small to the very large, down to the local authority level, right up to the national level. And they have to keep on doing this in perpetuity. And and aside from that, the Jews that are alive on this world would all have to be coordinated together to not say what actually happened to their relatives there would have to be a level of coordination that would be so total it's not just that if it if it was really happened that way it would be a case for genocide against jews because jews would would, would be an existential threat to, to the entire world which of course is the point but isn't just that it would also be a discovery about what human beings are capable that would change the very face of knowledge itself because if an entire people millions and millions of people were able to coordinate that silently almost telepathically then our notion of what human beings are capable of would have to be radically revised and frankly I've never seen Holocaust deniers ever make that argument, right? So by zooming out in that way you can actually see what's really at stake here and and perhaps offer a more effective debunking or at the very least be 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 clearer what's actually at stake here, what's really going on
1: yeah, I mean, in addition, and I think you pointed this out in, in, in your book, I mean, you would have to have had people in mass numbers voluntarily move from Germany, from uh, Austria, from, from Europe to go elsewhere, you know, pick up and leave. The whole Yiddish language culture would have to just, in a flash of an eye, suppress itself and, and vanish from the face of the earth.
2: It, you know, it, it, this strains all plausibility. It, it's not just that it strains all possibility but but, but again you can also taunt with that saying are you really sure you want to argue that are you really sure that you have? You are confident enough in that discovery to rewrite the entire history of humanity. Now, unfortunately, the answer to that is some people might do because don't forget that there are such things as flat earthers, and and there are conspiracy theories that are so outlandish that they are almost almost theological in their their Byzantine complexity. But again, at least then we know where we stand. If really. Holocaust deniers were, were to be making that argument, then they would float free from anything close to the sort of scholarly argument that they are trying to actually make, to be making a much bigger argument that might actually unnerve them. It's even more the case with climate change denialists. Whilst their arguments may seem less earth-shattering in their implications, they're still pretty massive. They're, it's basically saying that in dozens of Of unconnected disciplines, specialists in all kinds of fields have either coordinated, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of them, have either coordinated uh, and never let on that they're coordinating, or they have fallen to some kind of mass delusion completely independently of each other, in multiple societies, in multiple contexts, without any kind of prior communication. Again, either possibility, if they were true, would involve rewriting uh, what we know about, what human beings are, uh, and what they're capable of. And certainly in the case of climate change denialism, I think the majority of people who hold to that would bulk at making that claim. They don't want to make that claim.
0: I, mean, I find all this very useful thinking about Stalinist denialists that we've occasionally discussed in this podcast, and I've been trying to read up on, you know, what your examples of the uh, zooming out to see what is actually being implied by these denialist arguments and the absurdity of them. I think that's definitely the case for the issue of Grover Furr, who is a Stalinist apologist that we've discussed in this podcast a few times, um, because, it, you know, basically his position is just like the Stalinist party line on the mass repressions which was just like an absurdly hysterical sense of conspiracy, you know, coming from all sides of the Soviet Union, where the entire Politburo and, you know, there are spies and fascist conspirators, you know, tens of thousands of them all over the country, all somehow coordinated together. I mean, it was, it's not really Believable, right? And the the show trials were were so absurdist at face value that it, it's it, it strains uh, believability that that any of that could even be remotely true. But you know, Grover Fur never paints it in that sort of broad picture. It's always this very detailed nitpicking sort of argumentation where you never actually see the whole picture of what he's actually trying to argue, and, and so you, you one loses track of the larger scale of the entire argument that's being made.
2: Exactly, because the, the big picture is almost indefensible, but the smaller picture, a particular individual, that there's a lot more mileage in. Focusing on the particular helps to level the playing field a bit. Right.
1: I mean, in the case of somebody like Grover Fur, I mean, the problem is that he says uh, he's not defending Stalin and his only interest is a disinterested consideration of the actual facts, and he's not willing to take for granted the propaganda that comes from mainstream uh, anti-communist historical establishment, uh, and he paints himself as just somebody concerned with scholarly objectivity and, and facts, and he's got a big following uh, among very innocent youth. And, and so there, there has to be something said to combat the the actual denialism
2: obviously as i said before i don't think you can leave stuff like that out on challenge you have to do that it's clearly essential um but one thing i know that denialists crave they want to be debated with they want to be on platforms they want to be seen as the other side of the argument so What I'm suggesting is at least exploring the possibility of making the offer, okay, we will give you that platform, I will debate you. But if if you are gonna do that, we have to debate on different terms. We have to debate about a different thing. I think, I'm not saying it works in the sense that it destroys everything, but it's at least worth a go. And who knows what its impact could be? I mean, I don't know this particular individual you're talking about, I do try and avoid that particular menu, I have to say. But I doubt anybody has ever come to him to say, I'd like to do a debate about, in principle, uh, the best way of rooting out subversion in a society. We could argue it in the abstract, right? And perhaps that could wrong-foot him to a degree that who knows what the consequences would be. Because I think wrong footing is something that hasn't been tried.
0: I have a lot of your same concerns, Keith, about wanting to legitimate the sort of detail-oriented stuff, and also the amount of like research and fine-tuned knowledge you even need to have to debate on like these these really detail-oriented things. So I've been trying to think about what the big-picture issues really are, and how to bring out you know what's really at stake, because. What's really at stake isn't the sort of things the the Grover Fur wants to talk about, you know, whether every accusation that Khrushchev made in his speech about Stalin was 100% accurate or something. Like, that's not the real issue here. The issue is the historical atrocity that was Stalinism and how leftists make sense of that and what that means for people who are pursuing anti-capitalist politics in the future. So I think there is a, a much more important discussion to be had than the one that fur wants to have and that his sort of discussion is a mask. It's trying to avoid the really important d- uh, discussions.
2: And that in some ways not getting dragged into the detail is an act of resistance against denialism because if you look at There have been several books written about the David Irving trial. And one of the things that's astonishing is that you had basically several of the world's top historians spent a year not doing actual research, but going through Irving's work with a fine tooth comb. So, yeah, he may have lost, but he wasted their time when they could have been doing something... That would actually be productive and might deepen our understanding of the topics that they're looking at and it's that time wasting and and you know if you if take if you switch the picture to climate change we're in an emergency do we really want to spend that emergency arguing about how many polar bears there are in the in the, in the arctic because that is what will happen if you get sucked into that so the sort of offer I, I, I'm suggesting giving to denialists is saying, if you want to be treated as an equal partner, you you have to do it in such a way that you do not waste my time. If you want to be treated as an equal partner, let us be an equal partner in a debate that will be productive, that will treat this stuff with the seriousness it deserves. Otherwise, you're on your own.
0: And And what about the fear of you know, when you say equal partner, I think people might interpret that as like normalizing um, Nazis. So, like, what? But I'm assuming you don't mean
2: that. No, that that, that was a poor choice of words, I think. But uh, basically, saying as a as, as someone with whom one can debate, I think is is probably what I meant by that. And even then, what one has to do it very, very carefully and very, very selectively. Uh, and with a great deal of thought.
1: Well, one of the most striking things that you wrote in your book uh, is, quote, uh, you don't believe, speaking for yourself, you do not believe that if only I could find the way to make them understand, denialists would think just like me. If denialists were to stop denying, we cannot assume that they would then have a shared moral foundation on which we could make progress as a species. Denialism is not a barrier to acknowledging a common moral foundation. It's a barrier to acknowledging moral differences. Uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Uh, For example, one of the most profound and disturbing things that tens of millions of us in the U.S. have uh, finally been forced to confront during the last five years or so uh, is the fact that a very large segment of the population, the Trumpite base and so forth, does not have a shared moral foundation with us, Uh, they have little if anything in common with us and for a while now there's been a big and ongoing discussion here in the US about what to do about this fact. There's a big portion of the population that we we can't reason with in normal ways because they're not for the same things that we're for, they're not about the same things that we're about. But once we face the fact that denialists are underneath all the denial people who are profoundly different from us it seems to me there are two basic ways that one can respond. We can try to reason with them, with who they actually are, rather than who we'd like to imagine them to be. Or we can simply fight them, because reasoning with them is unlikely to work, or because engaging with their actual aims legitimates those aims, normalizes those aims, uh, or some combination of all of that. For instance, like Grover Furr and the Stalinist denialists. We could say to them, I'm for human freedom you're for tyranny, you're for violently crushing your opponents, let's sit down and talk about it. Or we could say to ourselves, and not speak to them, Grover Furr and his followers are not engaged in a good faith debate about facts. You know, the Stalinist tankies don't care about the facts. They're just on the other side of the barricades, and that's how we have to deal with them. So I like your reaction to what I see as a dichotomy there.
2: Um... I think it's both and both, actually. Um, I I, I think the best way forward is a kind of strategic approach. It is certainly true, if you take talk about Trump's base, whilst millions and millions of people were clearly ready to vote for uh, a rapist liar and would have stood by as he overthrew democracy... They didn't all do it for the same reasons and with the same agenda. For some of them, that, that was a compromise because they thought they could get something out of that. For example, if you were against abortion, you might say, you know, he's horrible, but if that is what it takes to accomplish my goals, then I will live with it. Other people, just because Republicans charge lower taxes, and that's how i've always voted or whatever it is the moral implication in voting for trump may be the same across the board but the moral values that underpin it may be quite different there is certainly the case that there is certainly a substantial core within that with whom it is impossible to do anything but fight but perhaps one of the things that's useful in developing political strategy is to try and f- target who one fights and how one fights in the most effective way possible, ideally by reducing to as small a smaller number as possible those w- from whom no engagement is possible. And I also think that there's maybe a third way that, that you haven't talked about is, is that people have different moralities, that's true, but morality is not a fixed thing. It's always in progress, a process. It's full of contradictions. It is full of opportunities for revelation, for change. And I don't think we should turn our back on that possibility. There is always ambivalence if you look hard enough. There may be possibilities there for leveraging that gap between the the brutal way they may see the world as a whole and the kindly way they may see the person standing in front of them. I'm not a hugely hopeful person, but I have a certain amount of hope in that, that people are complicated and people often combine moral brutality towards others as groups with moral sophistication in the world around them, immediately around them, I should say. That is something that I think needs to be nurtured and there are some examples of having done that there is and i never remember a name there is an evangelical christian woman in texas who has been doing indefatigable and often quite lonely work talking patiently with republicans and talking about climate change and because she talks these people's language and because she understands their concerns and the general way they see the world is able to leverage that to create some kind of foundation for moral acknowledgement. And that sort of thing does give me hope. Uh, the idea that morality and the way we see the world is always in process is, is something that I think we can hold on to.
0: Um, well, Keith, Keith Harris, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Free Humanity. This has been a great conversation.
1: Yes, thanks so much, Keith. My pleasure. Everybody should uh, find Keith's book and, and read it. It's very illuminating. Yeah,
0: it's great stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating read. Thanks. I'm glad you liked it. And thanks for having me on the show. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.